We're going to be looking in John chapter 6 this morning. John chapter 6, a message I call leading when none follow. John chapter 6 and verse 66. Now, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? And then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Now, John Maxwell may not have invented the following saying, but he certainly gave it popularity. He said, if you think you're leading, but no one is following, then you're really just taking a walk. I heard another preacher put it this way. He said, the real test of leadership is how many are following and who. How many are following and who. But our text today puts those ideas to the test. You see, Jesus had enjoyed a tremendous time of ministry. Uh, we know the day before the events of our text uh, was the incredible time when Jesus was surrounded by thousands of people. They were hungry, and he fed over 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch, five loaves and two fish. Uh, after that, you know, he decided to move over to the other side of the sea and he sent the disciples on ahead. Uh, no big problem. He just walked out on the Sea of Galilee and joined them and got in the middle of a storm and, and got them to the other side of the bank. Uh, well, those thousands of people woke up the next day. Jesus was gone, so they went looking for him. They found him in Capernaum, of course, teaching, of course. And uh, he responds to them in verse 26. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father hath set his seal on him. Now, Jesus would move quickly from that since they were so busy wondering about food. You know, they were asking about food. They'd fed them yesterday. Uh, they had bread and fish the day before. I'm sure some of them were thinking, hey, you know, how about some steaks today? You know, maybe we can have something different. They were ready to eat again. That was the only reason they were there. And Jesus refused to feed him. He refused to do that again. And instead, he began to prompt them about the truth that he was the bread from heaven, the true bread. And in fact, he would give them some very strong teaching that told them that unless they eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, then you will have no life in you. You can't have everlasting life. Oh, they were highly offended by that, as Jesus knew they would be. Uh, but he was quick to explain himself to them in verse 63. It is the Spirit... Who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. So he was quick to point out to them that what he was talking about, when he was talking about eating his flesh and, and drinking his blood, was about receiving his word. He said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. The word that he was proclaiming to them was that he was the son of God. That he was the means that, by which they would receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. If they would receive him, if they would believe on what he said. And here was this great crowd of people. But when Jesus looked out over them, he knew. He saw, it says it right here. He knew 
that though those people claimed to be disciples, they were followers. If you ask them, what are you doing? We're following Jesus. But listen, they were unbelievers. Most of those people in that crowd were not believers. He would turn his attention then to the 12 in our text and say to them, will you also go away? What about you? Do you also want to go away? You see, he knew that out of the 12, one of them was an unbeliever. And I'm sure at that point in time, he very much wanted to go away like all the other unbelieving crowd. It must have been a strange thing to look out over all of that host of people and know that though they claimed to be followers of him, they were really unbelievers. But it would get worse, of course. Matthew 26, 56 says, But all this was done that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. I want you to follow my thinking here this morning. See, I'm asking you, uh, talking about following when no one leads, or, or leading when no one follows. Here was Jesus preaching to thousands. One day, the next day, he was preaching to 12. And then, before he was done, he would be going it all alone when he took the cross for you and me, he died alone. So is it really the true test of leadership? Uh, how many are following and who? Are you, is the real test of leadership, you know, do you have to have a crowd of people following or otherwise you're just taking a walk? We might ask of Jesus, well, what did Jesus do wrong? Jesus didn't do anything wrong. Would we deny that Jesus was the greatest leader that ever lived? Of course he was. Of course he was. And yet here he was, the greatest of all leaders, doing everything exactly right, and he went from leading a crowd of thousands down to just a handful. Ultimately, he would go it alone. You see, I submit to you today that the true test of leadership is not always how many are following. The true test of leadership is not always even who is following. You can be a leader when you have to lead alone. We live in a very unusual time. And we are living under what I consider to be one of the most powerful expressions of social pressure in history. We're watching as the desire to conform, to go along, to avoid standing out and attracting attention to ourselves, has become one of the most powerful forces at play in our world. To put it simply, listen, we fear social shaming and becoming a social outcast more than we fear almost anything else. It is inevitable that this must come to us. It is. It already has. Just yesterday, I sent an article to Brother Mark about a Christian ministry in England that has been targeted because they believe that a person can be changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and even their sexual practices can be changed. And when activists in England learned of this, they began to protest this 
Christian ministry with the effect that their writings were all taken off Facebook, taken down from Instagram. MailChimp canceled their account. By the way, if you get an email from me every week, it comes through MailChimp. Yeah. PayPal, how about that one? Canceled their account. Barclays canceled their accounts. Uh, this is not unusual anymore. We live with this kind of thing happening every single day. All you have to do is attract attention from the right set of people. And these people are relentless. Amazingly, some of the harshest critics of that Christian ministry in England were other Christians, other so-called Christian groups. So do we believe that the Bible can change a person's sexual practices? Uh, do we believe that the gospel and being under the teachings of the Bible can, can make that happen? Absolutely we do. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 says, Know you not that the unrighteous, look at it, Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers themselves of mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Paul was preaching in Corinth. And he was preaching to a lot of people who had once lived a very horrible lifestyle. All kinds of them. Some of them were revilers. That means basically what we call today gossips. Aren't you glad that even gossips can get saved and get changed? <laughs> Great thing. Uh, but there were a lot of other things, much worse than that. Here's a person who maybe is a serial adulterer who has cheated and cheated and cheated, but they get saved. And they stop. Some person that's promiscuous and has lived an awful life from partner to partner to partner, but they get saved. And they stop. And all on this list, and it's a very long list. Paul could look at them all. Such were some of you. But you are washed, but you're sanctified, but you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, we still believe that the gospel can change people. Yes, we still believe the gospel can change people's behavior and change their lifestyle. And because we believe that, we stand with hundreds of generations who have believed the same thing and lived it out. But we stand in abstract contradiction to a culture that is determined and ruthless and who use the power of social shaming very effectively. Think of Chick-fil-A. I've told you before, I'm not a big Chick-fil-A fan. But I, 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 on one hand, you know, we might say, well, boy, they sure have been a target. Yeah, well, it hadn't done them a lot of, bad, a lot of harm. <laughs> you go down McCain Boulevard at lunchtime, and you, you better be in the inside lane, or you're going to get stopped because people can't even get in the, <laughs> the parking lot uh, to get around Chick-fil-A. And I see that happening all over the place. And some of you are in those lines, and God bless you. Uh, I'm down at the KFC myself, but, uh, you know, you're up there getting, do you like that stuff? Well, good. I, I, I do like their sauce. I, I can say that. But um, how, many, how many cities have they been banned from? How many malls have they have kicked them out? I mean, we read about it all the time. It's happening uh, not only in this country, but even in other countries. You see, this is a very powerful and organized group of folks. It's one thing, you see, to stand for Christian principles and to stand for what the Bible says. 
when we are surrounded by a crowd of people who believe the same way we do. But what if you have to go it alone? See, that's what we're talking about today. Can you lead if you have to go it alone? Can you still be a leader if you have to stand alone? Did you see the pictures this week of Giants pitcher Sam Coonrod refusing to kneel on the sideline of the baseball game? He explained his refusal to kneel by saying, as a Christian, I can't kneel before anything but God and Jesus Christ. I, I, I cried. When I saw it, I cried again when I tried to talk about it. How would you like to be Sam? I prayed for Sam. I hope he keeps standing. And doesn't bow. But can you imagine how much pressure is being put on him? Will he be able to continue to stand even if he has to stand alone? There's not a person in this building, not one of you watching from at home is immune from this pressure. We all feel it. We are inclined to keep our true beliefs to ourselves. To be quiet about them in many, many circles because we don't want to be controversial. We know that people can get very mad and if they really get it in for us, they'll come after our jobs, they'll come after our kids, they'll come to our homes, maybe dox our address, they'll come after our spouses. There is nothing, there's nothing that they won't attack if they get it in for us. We know it. Folks, if this was a Star Trek movie, the culture would be called the Borg and their motto would be resistance is futile. And if you never watched Star Trek, I'm sorry. Maybe I'm not. This morning I thought it would be good to look at some biblical principles and examples of people just like us. You know, the Bible talks about Elijah, and Elijah is one of the ones we're going to look at this morning who had to stand alone. And Elijah was a man, the Bible specifically says, of like passions like us. That is, he feels the same thing we feel. Elijah was a man just like us, and yet he prayed and it didn't rain, and he prayed and it started raining. Elijah was a man just like us. So were all of these other examples that we're going to look at this morning. I picked out five. I, I could have picked out many more. But they stand as great examples of people who stood though they had to stand alone. They led though no one followed. And the first one is Daniel. Daniel would almost have to be first on anybody's list when you start thinking of somebody that had to stand alone. Now Daniel stood alone. Uh, Daniel was abducted from his family. Uh, he was made a eunuch. He served then in the, in, the, in the palace of the king of Babylon and he would serve there uh, until he died. Uh, Daniel was removed from everything he had ever known and it was made so that he would never have any hope of ever being able to go back to who he was or what he was or where he was. Everything was changed. They even changed their names. There they are. 
But Daniel, Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8, purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, not with the wine nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now Daniel was standing on rock-solid biblical truth. You know uh, that the Jews had very strict dietary requirements. They could not eat food that was prepared in certain ways. Some things they couldn't eat at all. And uh, they couldn't have anything to do with anything that had been given to idols and nearly everything that they were going to get from the king's table uh, had been dedicated to idols. That's just the way it was. And so Daniel, Daniel didn't organize a protest. Daniel made a very, very uh, simple request. And I, I think he did it in a very respectful way. He went to the chief of the eunuchs. He went to his governing authority. And he just said, listen, can I not defile myself? And here's my proposal. Just give us a little time and we'll eat nothing but, but parched pulse. And yes, I know there were three others who stood with him, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We'll talk about them in a moment. Uh, but there were a whole, whole lot of Hebrews who were eating the king's meat every day, but not Daniel. He said, I'll tell you what, this is my proposal. We'll eat parched pulse. And if we don't look better uh, at the end of this time uh, than everybody else, then, uh, then we'll talk. Uh, but of course, he trusted God. And God made sure, because they were blessed, uh, that they got fat on parched pulse. You just remember that. You can eat popcorn and rice and cottage cheese all you want to, but if God wants to make you fat, he can do it. <clears throat> he blessed them. So that their countenance was fairer and they were sharper. They were, had more energy than anybody else. And the fact that they were being blessed in doing this because they would not defile themselves then became obvious to everybody. He said, just put us to the test. Examine it. See what happens. And of course they did. And, and we know how it turned out. That wasn't the last time that Daniel had to do that. We read on in Daniel chapter 6 and we remember when uh, Daniel's enemies got an end for him. And they knew that the only way they were going to be able to get at Daniel was in something relating to the way he worshipped his God. And so they had the king then pass a law that nobody could pray to anybody except God. They might as well have called that Daniel's law because it was aimed at him. They wanted to get him down. And so they made it illegal to pray. What Daniel do? <laughs> he prayed. Three times a day, just like he always did. Oh, he went in his prayer closet and played, prayed in secret. No, he didn't. He sat out in front of his window where anybody could see. And he knelt down before God and kept praying. Of course, you know what they said. Well, we'll throw you in that lion's den. <laughs> and they did. They did. But God stopped the mouth of the lions. You see, Daniel stood on the rock-solid truth of God. He wasn't going to pray to some king. God had forbid them to pray to anyone but him. He wasn't going to eat the king's meat. God had forbid him to do it. He was standing on the truth of Scripture. And he took a bold stand. He took a powerful stand, though he had to stand alone, and he did. And the question for us is, are we willing to stand alone even if we become a target, even if we face the threat of death? But we stand for the truth of Scripture. That's the message that Daniel gave us. Then there's Joshua. Joshua chapter 24. We love the story of Joshua. Joshua took over from Moses after he died in the leading of the children of Israel. He led them into the conquest of the promised land. Uh, he was old when he started. He was really, really old when he got done. He said, I'm through. And he called Israel together for one last uh, meeting before he was done. 
And he challenged them. He said in Joshua 24 and 14, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve you the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, you might say, well, Joshua was standing before all of Israel, and all of Israel probably followed Joshua, at least at that time, and they did. They professed that they would. Uh, But regardless of all of that, I think Joshua brought it down to a point that we need to consider today because he said, no matter what else anybody does, as for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. And I bring that to you today because I think it is a very, very pointed reminder that one of the most important places where any of us can serve the Lord is in front of our family. To take a stand for God, even if we have to stand alone, So that our children and our grandchildren and yes, even our great-grandchildren can see that we are taking that kind of stand. Daniel did the same thing. But we find that also in Joshua and very clearly done as it affected his family. I understand this morning that we all face that pressure in the culture. And there are many settings where we are forbidden to speak of our faith or where we are intimidated to speak about what we truly believe. I understand that. But there is one place where we must speak God's truth and that is to our family to our children and in our household Daniel taught us then to stand alone for the truth of scripture if we have to stand alone and Joshua teaches us to stand alone for our family if we have to stand alone as for me and my house we'll serve the Lord Then we bring up Paul the Apostle in 2 Timothy chapter 4 as he's writing his last letter and thinking back over a long life. And he said this, he said at my first answer in verse 16, No man stood with me, but all men forsook me, I pray, that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And we're not sure exactly which answer it is that Paul is talking about. But we know that the first time uh, that he was called before a council or court was in Jerusalem. And as a result of that uh, trial, when he had to give an answer, that is, he was put on trial, uh, that was the first time he was actually put in prison for a long term. As a result of that trial in Jerusalem, we know that was the first time he was in prison. He would spend five years in Caesarea, and ultimately he would end up in Rome because of that. But five years he spent in Caesarea. At my first answer, And if Paul indeed was talking about Jerusalem when he was called before the council and he had to stand alone, we have to ask, where were you, Simon Peter? Where was you, James, pastor of the church at Jerusalem? Where was John? Where's all the other apostles? When Paul gave his first answer, where was all the others? Hmm. He had to stand alone 
And he prays, and God, don't lay it to their charge that they didn't stand with me. But you can tell because Paul is still writing about it in literally what is his last epistle, in the last chapter of his last epistle. It hurt him bad. But what a great response. Nevertheless, the Lord stood with me. I'd have to say, you know, I'd rather have the Lord standing with me even than having Simon Peter standing with me. I mean, I love Simon Peter, but my, he had the Lord standing with me. The Lord stood with me and gave me strength. And therefore, Paul makes our list today as an example of how that we may have to stand alone. But that's okay if we're standing with the Lord because the Lord stands with us. What a great example Paul was. Then we see Daniel, we see Paul, we see Joshua, Elijah, Elijah. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21, Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt you between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. It's tough being a preacher and you give an invitation, nobody comes. Make an altar call. Y'all all come to the altar. No. Nope. How long halt you between the two opinions? If God be God, serve him. If Baal be God, serve him. And the people said nothing. He couldn't even get an amen out of that crowd. Not a bit. It's no wonder when you look forward a chapter ahead, Elijah would come to the conclusion that he was the only one God had left. That's what he said. I alone, I alone, God, I'm still serving you and they're trying to kill me. It's no wonder he felt that way. It was one Elijah and 400 prophets of Baal plus Ahab plus, plus Jezebel plus the armies of Israel that they had at their disposal. And one Elijah. But God would respond to him and tell him, Listen, Elijah, I have 7,000 in Israel that have not bowed the knee unto Baal nor kissed him. But Elijah would have felt a lot better if a thousand or so of them people would have stood up uh, with him. And the story would even be better. We'd, we'd like the story more if a thousand or so of them would have showed up. But no, uh-uh, it didn't happen. He had to stand alone on Mount Carmel. And where Paul stood alone with God, let's remind ourselves, Elijah stood alone for God. And against all that wicked crowd and all of that terrible evil influence that was being led by Ahab and Jezebel, all of that awful idolatry and the horrible things that were being done there, but there stood Elijah, God's champion, standing alone for God. We're almost done. We have to remember, I, I, I told you about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah, we're going to talk about them. Daniel's three friends, verse 16 of Daniel chapter 3. And they answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Now, you remember the story. Nebuchadnezzar built this big, huge statue of himself. 
Uh, Daniel had had a vision where Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold and it went all the way down to feet of clay and, and Nebuchadnezzar responded to that, that I'll, I'll show you, I'll build an image made of gold all the way down the foot and set it up so that everybody would worship it. And of course Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, no, no, we're not going to do that. I'll tell you what, when everybody else is bowing the knee and you stand up, you kind of stand out. You understand what I'm saying? There was no question about who wasn't bowing down to the image. And you know the penalty. Uh, well, they built a huge fiery furnace and made it so that everybody, everybody who would not bow to Nebuchadnezzar's image would be burned in the fiery furnace. I've often wondered if maybe Hitler wasn't familiar with this passage. Don't know. Just often wondered. Well, when they called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before the king, they said, we're not careful about it. It wasn't like they dropped their head and said, oh, king, I'm sorry. We, oh, no, we, we, just, we just can't hardly do it. Please be. No, no, no. They looked the king right in the face and said, we're not careful to answer you. You've told us we're going to do this. You're going to throw us in the fiery furnace. This is our answer. <laughs> we're not going to bow. We will not worship your image. Our God is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, <laughs> we still won't bow down and worship your hand. Well, Nebuchadnezzar didn't like their answer very much, so what did he do? He made them heat the furnace up seven times hotter. It was so hot that when the men threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, the Bible says that it killed the people on the spot who threw them in. The king was out there watching what did he see? We threw three in the fire, but now there's a fourth man, and looks like the Son of Man is with them. The Son of God is with them. They came out. You know how the story went. Their eyebrows weren't singed. Their hair wasn't singed. Their garments didn't even smell like smoke. But the men who threw them in that thing died. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego remind us that it matters who and what you bow your knee to. Don't think that the emphasis in our culture today about bowing the knee is just haphazard, something somebody came up with and it doesn't mean anything. It does mean things. Remember that God said to Elijah, I have 7,000 men in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal nor kissed him. God knows what we bow our knee to. He knows what we stand for. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were standing for God, standing for God's truth, and they would not bow the knee to any other. It is always significant who and what we bow to. And when the world is all bowing and we're standing, we're making a statement. Will you do it like those three Hebrew young men did? And do it if you have to stand alone. Daniel, Joshua, Paul, Elijah, the three Hebrews. Now, one more. Esther. Remember the story of Esther. If you don't remember it, go home and read it. An Old Testament book. It's not going to take you that long to read. It's just a few chapters. 
It's a story of how a man named Haman hated the Jews. He hated the Jews because he hated Mordecai. He didn't honor him the way that he should have honored him as Haman thought that he should. And so he devised a plot. It was a plot of genocide against the Jewish people. He had the king then uh, issue this edict uh, that would allow the the people to uh, just kill out uh, the Jewish people completely in all their reign. Mordecai went to Esther, who just happened to be queen, who just happened to be Jewish. And he said to her, don't you think that just because you're in the palace that it's not going to come to you because it will come to you too? And he asked her a great question. Who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Esther responded, go gather all the Jews who are present in Sushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She went before the king, though she knew it was against the law. She went before the king, though she knew she was likely to be killed on the spot. But she went. The king gave her favor. He listened to her story. (laughs) And you know how it ends, because Haman ended up getting hung on the very gallows that he built to hang Mordecai on. Now, Now, God does have a sense of justice. The Jews were spared. For what a great question that was for Esther. Who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. We can answer that question. Yes, she had come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Yes, that's why she was there. God had put her in that place at that time so she could make the stand that she made, though she had to stand alone. So we look at what's happening in our world today, we need to remind ourselves that this has not happened to generations before us. It's happened to us. It's not your great-great-grandparents' world. This is our world. And you and I are going to have to make that same choice and we're going to have to come to that same understanding that God has put us in this place and this time, and now it's our time. If it was a Hemingway novel, we might quote an old poem that says, Ask not for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for you. It tolls for me. It's our time. But we stand at this critical moment in history where we take a stand for God And for his word. Esther teaches us that standing for God is more important than living. She teaches us how to stand for God at the right time. Daniel stood for scripture. Joshua stood for his family. Paul stood with God if no one else. Elijah stood for God. The three Hebrews. It matters who you bow to and who you stand up to. And Esther. Will you stand at the right moment in time? Or will we let it 
passes by. The social pressure that you all are feeling right now is real and immense. And it's growing. It's not going to stop. And if we are going to stand for God, we may very well find ourselves standing alone. You may stand alone in your own home and with your own family. You may stand alone in your neighborhood. You may stand alone on the job. When all of our teachers and students go back to school here in a week or so, you may stand alone at school. Those of you who work in the government, you may stand alone in the government. And when you stand, you face the possibility of very real shame, social shaming, that may proceed even further. And I remind you of the words of the writer of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 when he told us that Jesus Christ endured the cross, endured the cross, endured the cross, despising the shame. Aren't you glad that they didn't shame Jesus? He despised that. When they picked up the nails, he kept right on task. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. But we need to steal our resolve as the people of God. We need strength in our character. We need a strength of determination that says that I'm not going to be shamed into silence. I'm not going to be shamed into bowing before something I should not bow to. I'm not going to be shamed away from bowing before heaven's king. I believe the Bible is the word of God. I don't always do it, but I always believe it's right. And I'm going to stand for what it says. The world needs to see us take a stand. And we need to make sure we're standing on the right thing, standing on Scripture. That we're standing for the right person. We're standing for God and standing with God. That we stand at the right time, and the time is now. This is our time. That we stand for our families, for our future. It may not change the destiny of this nation or the destination of this nation. <laughs> but won't it be wonderful to stand before God and say, you know, having done all, we stood. We have to be careful. The things that we do, that's true. I want to take a moment just to speak to our, our crowd at home. And I, I want to say, as I've said many, many times, I appreciate all of you that you're watching at home. Many of you are up in years. You have health conditions that you shouldn't be out, and you're not. We support you in your decision to stay at home. I don't, I don't want you to think that we're not, because we are. 
Some of you are fearful for your families, and you're just not, uh, you're just not ready to get out. I understand that. Uh, I, I just we respect your decisions. You have to make them. But if you're staying at home out of convenience, because you've learned that it's a whole lot easier to stay at home just watch us on TV, I want to challenge you today. This world needs to see you make a stand. And one way you can do that is by getting out of your house and off the couch and coming to church. Some of you are protesting. You don't like what the government's done. I don't think any of us like very much of what the government's done and all of this stuff. But if you're protesting by staying at home, I'm going to ask you as your pastor to rethink your thinking. The world wants to shut this place down and every place like it. And we as God's people need to take a stand. And if that means coming up here and wearing a mask, just get your mask on and come on. You can live with it. If you can't breathe with a mask, that's an underlying condition. I understand. Stay at home. But don't make a protest out of not coming to church. You're playing right into the hands of what's going on around us. If you're mad at me, just come up here and yell it out of your system. After all, I'll forgive you when you're done. I promise. <laughs> After it's all over, I'll forgive you and I'll still love you. If you're just mad and want to yell, come up and let me have it. And then be at church next Sunday. What a plan. It's time for us as God's people to make, make a stand. And I'm not, uh, please don't misunderstand me and don't misapply what I've said. I'm not trying to shame some of you folks that are staying at home because you need to stay at home. But I am talking to a lot of the rest of us. We've got to make a stand in all kinds of ways. And one of the easiest is by being in God's house on Sunday morning so your family and your neighbors and others can see you doing it. And I pray you will. I'm going to have a word of prayer for us at this time. And Brother Bill's going to come and, and lead us in a song. And we're going to close out our service. And uh, I hope as we're praying, as we're singing, you'll think about these things. And if you have a decision you need to make for Christ about your stand for Him, I, I hope this will be the time that you make that choice. Let's stand together, please.